I'm Andrew Faust. This is Permaculture Perspectives. In today's episode, you're going to listen to Mark Lakeman and I having a great conversation. Mark is somebody whose work I've always admired and appreciated. He's one of the major forces behind the village building convergence, a whole takeover intersections activity in Portland. Now sit back, enjoy, and thanks for listening. So I'm here with Mark Lakeman, Permaculture Perspectives podcast. Really inspired to have Mark with us here. I'm going to share some of the real breadth and depth of Mark's work with our listeners, and then we're going to dive into a conversation about latest projects that you've been engaging with. Uh, Mark Lakeman is the founder of the nonprofit placemaking movement and organization known as the City Repair Project. He is also the principal and design director of the community architecture and planning firm Communitecture. Mr. Lakeman is an urban placemaker and permaculture designer, community design facilitator, and an inspiring catalyst in his very active commitment to the emergence of sustainable cultural landscapes everywhere. Every design project he is involved with furthers the development of a beneficial vision for human and ecological communities. Whether this involves urban design and placemaking, permaculture and ecological building, encourages community interaction, or assists those who typically do not have access to design services. Mark's leadership has benefited communities across the North American community. This includes cities such as Los Angeles, Seattle, and Ottawa, where city repair projects are underway. Awarded by the International Organization Architects and Planners for Social Responsibility for his work with Dignity Village, one of the United States' first self-developed permanent communities by and for previously homeless people. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome, Andrew. It's a real pleasure. I look forward to our conversation. Thank you. I believe we met in New York City when you were uh, there on a tour at one time with a colleague who was hosting you. came to the Commons. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So 2004 or something like that, I think. Yeah. Way back. Yeah, that sounds right. So how are, how are things out in Portland? What have you been... Uh, what, what you, what's shaking out there? Well, as you know, um, we've gone from, in terms of the impression of us on a national and international scale, we've gone from being uh, kind of this um, mecca of uh, successful urban activism. Um, I mean, from the state level to the city level, really being a model uh, to then more lately during the, the Trump nightmare, um, we, <laughs> yeah. we have uh, then degenerated in the eyes of the world. But I, I want to I re- report from within um, about where we are. But yeah, I think with the protests, um, it was quite, it's been quite a mix of uh, really fantastic, like a, sh- a show of strength by the activist culture of Portland um, standing up against the outrages of unaccountable violence against people of color, um, finally, you know, set off by George Floyd's murder. Um, And then the the protests being taken over by elements distinctly not associated with Black Lives Matter. Uh, And then the federal government sending in 
um, these shock troops that were kidnapping Portlanders, traumatizing them and then releasing them, but without any due process or, or legality. Uh, and, and all of that just further outraging the elements of the community that were in the streets, you know, and then that just le leading to this uh, really chaotic, unfocused um, acts, acts of uh, reaction. Um, yeah. So the downtown is in poor shape. Um, our, you know, it's, it's been like our shining crown jewel of how to reinvent a downtown where all the storefronts are full and the downtown is stewarded, you know, and with all of these attended complexities and contradictions, like, um, you know, still having homeless people, mm -hmm. uh, still not having solutions, at least ones that have been embraced by the political culture to actually do something. So we had, you know, plenty of problems, but we were the leading city with increasing bicycle, uh, you know, bicycle ridership um, every year and multimodal, uh, you know, commuting and just kind of all of these indicators across the board of Portland's robust activism engaged in solving problems. So, um, yeah, we've gone from really having our act together to having a bunch of black guys, but from within, Yes. We're actually doing great. Communities are strong. Oh, you know, we're doing great, but we're also like, the, like we're perceived as being climate stable for years to come while forest fires are erupting in California and other places are seeing um, more extreme drought conditions. So lots of people are moving here and that means capitalization is happening all around us. Mm -hmm. The housing affordability crisis is uh, obscene. Um, the amount of people being thrown into the streets is uh, unprecedented. So we got more more problems to contend with than ever, and the community has been staggered by by the last you know all the challenges of the last few years. Nonetheless, um, we do have we do remain like the city with the most active participation of all American cities. So we have hope that we can contend with these challenges, especially if we get a political um, sea change. Yeah. Yeah. Are there, are there some things coming up in the wings as far as people that are looking to come into office that you feel positive about? Yeah. Well, um, one of, one of like the nonprofit organization city repair that I co-founded years ago, um, one of our coordinators ran for mayor the last couple of cycles and she almost got in, mm -hmm. but then um, a black lives matter organizer decided to run as a third party candidate. And that was really distressing because that split the progressive vote. And then the so-called progressive mayor, um, who's really, really more mainstream to the right, uh, he was reelected. Everybody's kind of like arch enemy was reelected because of the divided vote on the left. <laughs> so nonetheless, right. our, our favorite candidate, Sarah Ayanarone, um, is now training. She's she's got a school where she's training um, political candidates to run at all levels. She's brilliant. She's the smartest person in the room for sure. Uh, just a, a brilliant, astute urbanist who uh, is very much a grassroots person. So there's a lot of foment in the city, and um, we'll see what happens in the next cycle. And the the village repair program is a. 
the, I, I, I recall the term, the village building convergence. Is that something that you're still, is that still yeah. that you'll be, that you'll be bringing together again now that we're in the sort of somewhat post pandemic, whatever that means. Uh, yeah. Here? Well, we, um, it's, it hasn't stopped during the pandemic. It went virtual. So we had yeah. you know, a lot of zoom based stuff and, uh, that happened for two years. And then last year we actually started to have projects again. Um, about a dozen and a half projects happened during the village building convergence. So I can't give up on that. To me, that's it's the it's it's the form of activism that gives me hope for systemic change because mm -hmm. it it causes all this horizontal and vertical integration through the from the grassroots to the top of the political leadership, you know, to recognize the hierarchy there. Um, and it gets everybody talking and doing stuff that really opens up people's sense of how the world could become better. Um, for one thing, a lot of the projects have to do with repurposing existing public right-of-ways. And right. it introduces everyone to the fact that, I mean, suddenly the mayor and the city council are sitting there talking about, oh, my God, we live in the colonial grid. Oh, my God, we do have the fewest community gathering places of all first world nations, because we are not a we are not a village-based society that emerges out of people and out of the land. We are a designed system that is imposed and then regulated from central places. So we are the opposite of human sustainability. We're the opposite of human habitat. We're really the opposite of permaculture in that in that respect. Because we're not designed to be relational, we're designed to be extractive. And the end result is to concentrate wealth and power by design. That's the nature of colonialism. So we have people talking about that. And then the form of resistance that it takes is people liberating public space by, you know, planting all of these things to define the edges of the crossroads or the intersections, and then installing these huge, beautiful emblems or murals in the street that are designed, generated by the people who live right there. So then they, you know, their unification of focus and their sense of like, um, well, their collaboration into a greater whole then gets, you know, installed on the street saying, you know, we are here, we are reclaiming this. It's not for cars anymore. It's for people. So we're trying to turn the whole paradigm over through that kind of act. And what's this, what's your strategy around site selection for where you do those installations yeah well our role is to just know that it needs to happen mm -hmm. and the way that the sites are chosen comes from well as the as one of our former mayors said we need to support these projects where the heat emerges so if you have enough people that actually know each other and are talking to each other then the new kind of principle that we have is anything that's created um, that is going to be supportable only if there's a culture that is starting it, sparking it, and then implementing it, and then you can grow everything from there. So it's up to them to define, to decide the opportune locations. And then because they, they live right there, there's just so many key pieces of that. Like what we're trying to do is create place-based culture. I mean, we're trying to not create it, but release it or you know, break the dam so that it's no longer repressed. 
Mm-hmm. So for people right there to say, we want to do it right here, right where we live is perfect. I mean, that's literally perfect because we're the perfect idea is to restore the idea of place-based sovereignty, which is the essence of really being indigenous. That's a complex you know, thing to say when we are colonizers after all. But I need to say that the thing that's unifying about this cause, hopefully for everyone of all stripes and all colors, is to first of all realize that everybody's kind of a refugee of the historical process of dislocation. All villages have been attacked for thousands of years by imperial cultures. And in that sense, we're all just kind of here, organized into this extractive force. And when when we try to root and commit and then recreate the dynamics and the power balance, um, that's the unifying cause. When people say that like even racism is like ultimately a class struggle, um, they're talking about what, what, I'm, what I'm bringing up here. Like that people just say, hey, wait a second. No, no. Instead of everyone going elsewhere, in the end, just creating more surplus for the wealthy. If instead we root right where we live, where we, have, where we can potentially have power, then we have the chance to change everything. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that history of imperialism, of colonialism, and the, the grid structure goes back to my understanding. Uh, the Roman structure of cities partially had to do with surveillance and the yeah. ability, right? It did very so we, you know, in we meaning in the United States, that type of imperialist infrastructure is what has been laid down, and yeah. it's, it sounds like much of the work that you're involved in is that reconstructing a, a sense of place and, and deconstructing much of the the baggage of the imperialist colonialist history and the industrialization of the landscape and rehumanizing that bringing it back to a, a human scale of you know, of uh, creating culture and, and creating a sense of community that's more interconnected rather than so fragmented Absolutely. And I just want to say you referenced Roman colonialism. And I think uh, I do want to say that, you know, there could be people that listen to your podcast and, um, and, or, you know, tune into this and uh, have a different kind of historical reference because uh, while what we are in is actually referred to as the Roman grid, there are people that think it's the like Hippodamian grid um, it, in, in my view, and I'm, I'm actually quite an expert on this after having you know, done research papers and uh, yeah, a lot of analysis. This is actually the, as far as we can tell, it's the Assyrian grid. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, it basically goes, it's generated as far as we, like the most, the grid that most resembles our grid goes back like 5,000 years. And we first find evidence of it in, in Assyria, and then it morphs into what the Babylonians were doing to their own people by imposing this system that was placeless. And eventually, it, you know, it makes its way into the way that Egyptians organized their labor force, compartmentalizing them into placeless places where there's no there's no possibility for them to have any kind of local culture, any kind of voice. They're just literally regimented into these organized systems, these barracks. 
like 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 Soweto, like is evidenced in Soweto, South, South Africa, or or Dachau or something, Auschwitz. Same exact mentality of treating people as if they're just you know a, a life force to be managed. And then this thing goes to Greece, and Greece uses this system in a very kind of different way, but still hundreds of times. And then once the Romans got a load of it, then they were the ones who really took it to the next level of um, really an imperial structure. And that's what we patterned off of for the entirety of the Western Hemisphere when Europeans, you know, moved over and started to, you know, enact these patterns and processes of conquest. So it's very appropriate to call our version um, you know, a form, a reformulation of Roman colonialism through the National Land Ordinance of 1785. So, yeah, you're I, everything you said. I just wanted to open it up because there's all these people that nitpick when we have this conversation. Like, no, it's this, no, it's that. Ah, uh, right. Yep. Yeah. What well, What was that last bit of uh, legislation that you just mentioned? The National Land from the 1700s. What is that? Can you share yeah, elaborate on that for me a little? Yeah, the National Land Ordinance of 1785. Um, it's also known as the Northwest Land Ordinance. But <clears throat> even before the Continental Congress was converted into, um, you know, af after the revolution, and we became uh, our own kind of sovereign governmental structure, even before then, we had some form of representative body that was interfacing with the English crown and the national land ordinance was enacted before the transition to the United States. And it's really like, in many ways, this, it's a thing that you're not taught about in school. You know, we're taught there's this declaration and then there's this constitution, there's this bill of rights and we got these big documents. Before them is the national land ordinance, which is actually the framework that these are all relating to. And it mandated how, we would expand into the West and how we would commodify the land of native people and convert it into a system that people on the East coast could actually regulate from afar. It was the set of patterns that the military would carry out and use to impose over the landscape as a way of systematizing it into, um, you know, ownable saleable units. Uh, right. So Northwest Land Ordinance, National Land Ordinance, it's the same thing. Yeah. It kept getting reauthorized and reauthorized as they as we moved forward and made these claims. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is one of the, the themes that we talk about with the Permaculture Living Lands Trust, because we've been looking a lot at William Penn's legacy and how he was one of the first land giant, arguably largest land gifts in the history of the world at the time, the amount of land that he just decided to take that then threw down a grid pattern and started to create deeds for property. And this whole idea of ownership of land is another kind of subtext that we often aren't really asking any questions about culturally. What, what does it mean to own land? When did this concept first come about? And how it's been used to really just do a land grab that is completely illegitimate. And, uh, and also the Homestead Act, right, from the 1860s is another piece of that. 
And from my own just lay exploration into this topic, the railroads were also a, a key part of this whole moving the Eastern dominator culture out to take over the rest of the North American continent with these very linear structures that then created these huge land you know, gifts from the federal government to the railroad companies that start this whole process of prospecting and acquiring yeah. land, right? Yeah, um, you can imagine these uh, men in suits sitting around in rooms with maps on the East Coast selecting squares because of the way that the grid system works, of course, you know, as you're just imposing it over your your best you know the best job you've done of mapping the actual geography, and then they're 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 charting the course of the of the railroad system, and they're also grabbing um, kind of associated areas for obviously for stations or for little townships that would support what they were doing. Yeah, all the way to the Pacific coast, and in some cases, you know, they're grabbing whole mountains like in in Portland here. Um, for the longest time, the railroad has owned the West Hills. I mean, tracts of the West Hills that then they would um, kind of parcel off and sell off, liquidate or trade for other, you know, kind of flat geography. Um, but yeah, they, I mean, the reason, how would the railroad own a mountain? Um, it's because they didn't know what the hell was on the square that they chose as they were sitting in New York um, claiming a square. Like that's that's the sick thing about colonialism is you you have these I mean just you could just think of the Romans in in in, in their in their uh, robes sitting there kind of just deciding which squares they're going to have that's that's kind of what we're talking about it's it's about people being able to say I'm going to have this I'm going to have that I'm basically God and then we're going to send troops out to enforce our will so. You know, the, to me, the urge of permaculture is is to create mutual benefit. It's just mutuality. It's about wholeness and collaboration. It's it's and essentially, it's like I don't know if you distill it down enough. It's like gravity trying to be emotional and and be relational and create a network of you know, that, that somehow flows and makes sense and delivers what everything needs. And this is the absolute opposite of it. It just it's an unconscious, unthinking urge towards selfishness. Um, at any cost, and you know, to end ecosystems, other human beings, all species, it's just abject ignorance and foolishness, violence. Could, could I ask you to go a little into some of your personal journey, so to speak, with permaculture? What brought you to the, to the term, to the, to it making sense to you as a, a framing for some of the work that you're doing? Yeah, sure. Well, it's a little messy. Um, <laughs> Great. Uh, let's see. My teachers were Starhawk and Penny Livingston. Mm, sure. And as soon as we were, um, as soon as kind of like Penny Livingston kind of identified us, she's like, oh my God, this is what you're doing. Um, what are your influences? Because she's, you know, she saw images of our work to transform public spaces. You know, before I even really understood permaculture, I heard the term and I kind of rolled my eyes. I'm like, oh no, what's this? Right. <laughs> but fortunately, 
I wasn't too I wasn't too many degrees of separation away because we had already started to do natural building. So we had people in our own midst that were able to say, hey, hey, wait, wait, this is something to be taken really seriously. But um, my introduction to permaculture was uh, really concisely. I was working, uh, I, had, I had a break from my career and I stepped away um, to go traveling and to visit alternative cultures. And once I was uh, traveling and then eventually arrived in this kind of so-called pre-industrial context of, of folks living in a rainforest, that's when I really came into contact with permaculture. Um, but I was you know, working in this huge firm and I was designing, it just made me feel so uncomfortable. I was designing these huge tracts of the future of Houston and the building, the skyscrapers that we were designing where we were depicting them at only this scale because there were so many of them. It was like this, just this like grand avenue that was, it felt like designing Rome and it just felt so uncomfortable. Like the people who will ultimately live and work in this place, you know, will never have a say, but our, our objectives have to do with, you know, kind of this, aesthetic formulation, statements of power, all this symmetry, mm -hmm. really very kind of a, a classical mentality and imposition. And I, I didn't like it. But then fortunately, there was this huge toxic waste cover up that I learned about in the firm where people were laughing. And I and, and the, just the gap between what I as a young person had learned to care about and the fact that in this corporation, people um, just were so disconnected from the ecological and political issues that were associated with just letting battery acid and, and oil just seep into the adjacent waterway. Mm. That, mm -hmm. that obviously then would affect our, everything in the ecosystem. I was just so disgusted that I quit that very day. And it was just time to travel. It was time to finally get out in the world. And I was really hungry. I didn't realize how hungry I was to start patterning off of the alternative cultures that I was visiting. I wasn't out to appropriate. I was out to learn because I wanted to bring, I mean, I found myself realizing that I wanted, I mean, on one hand, I was like, fuck architecture. You know, I don't want to be involved anymore. If this is what it is, then this is the wrong trajectory for me. But then as I was out traveling, I just became so fascinated with, the way that people design their own environments, like basically all these expressions of culture that we are have so much affection and affinity for are really just people problem solving in their own environment and having the power and the voice to join their ideas together, whether it's, you know, growing food for themselves or converting their environment into clothes or housing and village forms. And so I started to learn how people in, in actually freer contexts in many ways than the USA um, would go about doing these things. And I just saw everywhere there were various forms of gathering places where people would be doing things. And I realized, oh, wow, well, then when there's a gathering place, people get to meet each other. And then when they walk around through their village, they say hello because they're not afraid. And in the USA, where every damn neighborhood across the country is missing a public square. Of course, we're isolated. We're at, and then 
you know, and then I realized, wow, my own education in architecture taught me about this, except it was from the, it was from the vantage point of the conqueror and it never gave us the sociological consequences or related it to our own lives. So I became hungry. And then the further I traveled, the more interested I was in visiting indigenous people. And I found myself asking people like, you know, can you tell me more about your views of the United States? Can you tell me more about what you can see about USA and how I am right here with you? Mm -hmm. I wasn't trying to make it all about me because most of the time I was listening and just watching how people were like, you don't even have to, you don't even have to try. If you've grown up, if you've grown up in a circumstance where your own father is threatened by your success, you know, and that comes out of social isolation, the nuclearization of families, the breakdown of village. When you are coming from that place and then you're in a society where you see fathers and mothers just joyously um, being unthreatened by the ridiculous humor and the absurdity of the behavior of their children, and then they're just right there with them laughing. And also the, the, the non-separation of the family unit I'm talking in particular about a rainforest culture, which was like the apex of my experience, where the parents and the children were present together all the time. So the family was super strong, super tight, and the children were the most brilliant and the brightest lights of any kids. And their, and their mentors, their natural mentors, were their own parents, but mm -hmm. as part of this whole constellation of relationships. I was seeing permaculture, I, I mean, I didn't know the word yet, but I was seeing the permaculture, the culture of permanence and ultimate resilience where everyone's connected to each other through stories and relationships over, you know, at best it's like millennia and they know how independent they are. The coolest thing I saw, Andrew, among the coolest things was when people make decisions that feel that connected, their starting place isn't like us. This took me a while to realize what I had seen in the rainforest, but it was, it was viscerally both inspiring and upsetting at the time. But the way I could describe it now is as after I've reflected and learned, mm -hmm. this is the way I would say it. Our starting point is that we sit down around a table, whether we're using Robert's rules or sociocracy or consensus, our assumptions are that we're separate. And so we need like we actually go through, we have conversations all based upon these assumptions we don't even realize that we're making together. And as opposed to that, when you're in a place-based community with continuity over time, your starting point is to see that you're all part of a greater whole and the system is entirely different. It, it, it sends people away from the meeting acting on behalf of everything they've heard where they're trusting each other to go to the edge of the community and speak on behalf. So everyone's there to speak on behalf of all these people they feel connected to instead of people leaving a meeting with next steps, you know, and the people kind of worrying that, you know, what comes back won't necessarily serve the community. What I saw, especially in the Lockendown Maya village where I was for several different occasions was that, People would trust each other to go to that edge. And then whatever came back was understood to be the best set of choices 
that that individual could make on behalf of the greater whole. When I spoke with people from the Cheyenne tribe, they were like, everywhere, everywhere we go in the world, we are Cheyenne. And our people are saying to us, go, you know, represent us. Um, like they trust you to act with an integrity on behalf of the greater whole. And when I reflect on that compared to our own lives in the USA, like I am, I, my rage and also my sense of opportunity just swirls. I, it's dizzying, but I, all, I feel so robbed. I, I ache for us all to understand how robbed we are to not have this luminous like, knowing inside of ourselves that we are part of a larger social organism that we love so much we can't wait to act on behalf of it and, that, and to be trusted. What does it feel like to go to the edge of the people you're part of knowing that they all have your back? What is it like to have that sense of honor and sense of truly of place? Oh, right. Right. And so that exploration into the cultures of place that you went on was a predicate to the studies in permaculture then that you later pursued, I'm inferring. Yeah. Yeah. I came back full of all this advice and started to enact it. Um, in outrageous ways, and it was immediately legalized by our mayor and city council. And a sh- fairly short time later, Penny and Starhawk asked me to come and present, to join their class and come and present what we've been doing in Portland. And like Star just didn't want it to end. Mm-hmm. It was everything she's, you know, she talks about um, where basically, you know, the the sacred and the and the civic become one. And that's really what we were doing um, by being place-based and so creative. And Penny was like, no, this is, this is social permaculture. This is like the application of permaculture upon ourselves. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, coming out of my PDC with them, um, I started to be able to articulate our work in a whole new way and then deepen my ability as a designer to um, create integrated living systems. So, yeah, it was messy. It was messy. It was all the stuff that finally like came together and then into a new understanding. So you'd already been doing village building convergence events at that point? I see. Yeah. And that was part of what they had heard about your work and reached out to you and said, can you come share about this with us? Well, let me clarify. Actually, there was a period of four or five years, five years of city repair activism where we did all of these interventions and we changed legal structures um, before the actual advent of the village building convergence, which started in 2001. So we were doing village building models and we had already transformed street intersections and created a legal precedent for everyone to be able to do that but we didn't formulate it into this barn raising effect that would happen all over the city at once until 2001. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're still doing now. And uh, we're looking at a couple dozen projects over this year. When when will that be happening this year? June 10th, 17th. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. uh, The team is rebuilding itself. Obviously the pandemic took a toll. Frankly, a lot of internal 
misunderstanding happened that uh, is sensitive to talk about, but it is priceless to share somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would just cap- crystallize that by saying, you know, we um, had really successfully diversified our leadership culture, but then the, uh, like very many kind of different intentional communities around the country, we started to have internal tensions because people have become really upset and understandably impatient with the rate of change. Watching people, you know, police murder people unaccountably on video and uh, all of just all the rhetoric, the right-wing fascist rhetoric, rhetoric that's been happening. People started to freak out at their own friends um, because they just wanted to do something. And so that happened for us, too. We we came to the point of almost destroying ourselves. Uh, and most of the culture was just sitting there like a deer in the headlights, wanting to do, do what was to just support people and do the right thing and not do the wrong thing this kind of effect. I don't, I don't really like this term because I think it's a right-wing term, but cancel culture, just mm. the idea of people really cutting each other off for not being pure or being perfect, or not getting pronouns right, right. the first time or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. That effect was really strong for us. We almost destroyed ourselves, but we're, we're, not, we're not done. We're not gone coming back strong. Yeah, I think that was a shared challenge around the country. You know, certainly I don't know about the world, but certainly I witnessed that as well in this uh, community here and with the, and in particular within the permaculture community. I think there's been, there's been a lot of uh, division that's been created uh, through the course of, of this this uh, adapting to the to the language sets, as you're saying, and the the in a sense of pure puritanism that doesn't really avail us when we're wanting to collaborate and treat each other as fellow human beings, rather than this constant need to fit into certain categories or or use certain terminology and and have that be a a way to judge one another and not not have uh, open-mindedness by which we can see our interrelatedness and our interconnectedness as a sort of a higher calling or a, or a, a connecting thread that goes beyond what our individual potentially different opinions are. I mean, especially yeah. around, you know, mon- potentially mundane things, but the whole uh, vaccination topic was a big divisive one within many communities and i saw it as a big divider in permaculture in particular because you had a lot of very uh passionate viewpoints on pro this or anti anti you know pro-vax or anti-vax and that was that was a a major challenge um you know we chose to homeschool our daughter for the last two years and the homeschool community is really all over the place as far as polarization on on issues like that i I, yeah yeah same experience here i think um what's been really on one hand everyone's position in these these, uh, dynamics have been understandable um if we can have patience to just listen to each other Um, 
Yeah. The rightness and wrongness of different people's positions is one thing, just to be able to really get them and think of them. Um, you know, it's something that I think that we, we could have always been able to do better. Right. Uh, but one thing that I felt really clear about um, was that the the fascist element in the country was to use every dynamic that they could, especially the pandemic, as a way of dividing people. So I was really, I've been really, um, I've been really sad to see people falling into that. Uh, to kind of give a clue about where I stand, when I watched Vic Perry on television casting aspersions on uh, on 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 vaccines. Uh, and what I'm about to say is, like, I have my own suspicions, okay? Uh, I've been listening to everybody. There's a lot that I take seriously. But when I heard um, a right-wing fascist politician um, get, really helping to get all of this rolling by casting aspersions on, on just the whole notion of vaccination, but well before the pandemic, I was like, well, there's one thing I know for sure, and that is that Rick Perry is a lying sack of shit. And... Um, Whatever he says um, has to be, you know, you have to treat that with great, great um, suspicion um, mm -hmm. because he's not coming from any good place ever for anyone. So yeah. anyway, uh, the whole thing's just so sad to see. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I experienced similarly a sense of recovery from those, uh, you know, those fallouts. It's we're, we're in the recovery time. We're not to my reckoning still there as to what it, what is the remaking going to look like of the communities that were fragmented and that were in many ways um, just, you know, had some disintegration due to that polarization. And I, I, I agree. Yeah. I think it comes from my view back to this idea of what in one interpersonal communication book, I came across this term that I find useful, which is toxic certainty. And it's the notion that you're so right that you're going to argue to the end of the day about your rightness and how destructive that is in personal relationships and in our, in our intimate lives. If we're doing that with our partners, it is going to completely destroy your relationship. And I think that it, it ripples out into the greater world and our larger communal relationships. If we as individuals bring this toxic certainty to our communication style it doesn't lead to anything good that's oh, just horrible yeah i'm absolutely with you well about what it's going to look like coming out the other side i can tell you you know city repair is a bit of an indicator species because we've always gone to the edge of you know and integrated information um you know whether it has to do with the relationship of um, social justice to ecological justice uh, and some things. I mean, as soon as we get, as soon as we get a new a new kind of body of information, then it affects the way that we're transporting materials or you know communicating as a group, what have you. We're just constantly integrating. Well, coming out the other side, I can tell you that um, while we retain all of the like the priorities and the values that we had before especially for um, valuing, cultivating, supporting diversity, diverse participation, 
frontline communities. That's all true. At the same time, we have a new baseline, which is whoever is involved with us. Um, if they cannot treat other people with dignity and grace, um, if they can't accommodate other people's voices, like this is actually a great thing. I'm the elder of the movement, day one, and I have attained um, a, a, a sense of like authority in a way that I used to kind of sort of release all the time. I was just always facilitative and always deferring to people because I didn't want to be a dominator. And I don't want to be a dominator any more than I ever did. But now I'm at the point where I will chase people out. If if they cannot show up in a meeting and basically keep keep focused on what like there's a there's a sacred cultural agreement. We have a meeting, there is an agenda. Everybody has shown up for that agenda. And if somebody else comes to digress, obfuscate, bloviate, whatever it is, they're out the door. And I'm standing in my position as an elder. And frankly, there, there's an indigenous behavior there too. I'm noticing, you know, we're just, I mean, as everyone, so many people are able to acknowledge, you know, we're damaged. But one of the ways that we're damaged is... That's such a big thought. I don't really know how to articulate it concisely, but like we don't know how to value other people and understand how unique and different we are from each other. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is just because I'm an elder doesn't necessarily, in some people's minds, doesn't confer upon me um, any kind of extra uh, authority or voice. Um, but in a culture that's healthy and does have continuity over time, the position of the elder is to basically clean house when people can't get along. Mm -hmm. When they don't have to clean house, they're baking cookies for everyone, basically nurturing social culture because they don't want to use their authority. But there are times when they have to. And uh, Penny Livingston and John Young both walked me through this as a system that had been, I mean, as a cultural like structure that they had both been um, trained in and, and helped to be familiar with by the native people that they work with in their own activism. So they kind of conferred that on me and, and or rather related me, related it to me. And after all of my own experiences, I'm just really kind of realizing that's part of the culture I'm trying to restore is one where people um, are all kind of unequal. We all have equal access, but at the same time, we all, we all have like, relatively different levels of experience and when they're older healthy badass functional people in your midst um there are times when they're when they have to they have to tell everybody what time it is and that's where it that's what time it is for me um i'm not gonna shirk or be deferential i'm not gonna shirk my position anymore people used to be frustrated with me like mark would you just finally like stand in your power and say something. And I'd be like, no, I want to hear from you. Like now the time has come. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as a group, we've had enough. We've decided we exist. And whereas before we were always like, oh my God, should we leave and go back to Europe? Like now we've, we've, we, we're at this place where we still have all these complex feelings about colonialism and our role in that historically our ancestors and also we've decided we love this place and we're not leaving, we're rooting. Like we know that we're, it, like people with our point of view are essential. Um, mm -hmm. 
like vacating it so that the supremacists are only one left, only ones left here is obviously not a workable solution. So we're like recommitting to place and we're insisting on a baseline where people are inclusive of everyone. Nobody's going to have primacy. So. Well, thank you for that. Tell me a little about the, the dignity village project. Could you share some of what, what brought that about and, and maybe any sense of, you know, future projects that are in the wings along those lines? Yeah. Well, Dignity Village represents the beginning of a movement that is now in its 23rd year um, of DIY house, tiny home-based houseless unit uh, villages. Um, So that project is astounding. Um, For anybody who like loves anthropology and archeology span and design and planning, village design, urban permaculture. Um, This is the most fascinating study. In fact, that's what we said to the city council when they were about to legalize it. We're like, don't just say yes to this passively. Like this is something to be so excited about because we're gonna watch people who have basically been nomads in our midst come into kind of their own sort of sense of a promised land and then we're going to watch these patterns of, um, you know, kind of urban, like these emergent patterns of urbanity crystallize in front of us as a village. And it's the only one here that isn't driven by commodity. It is going to be something that reflects these villagers making decisions to meet their needs. So we're going to watch an actual village emerge and it's going to be made out of trash, which is even more fascinating. They're going to take the detritus of the waste stream and turn it into place before your eyes. 10,000 years of cultural development will just happen. And they're like, oh my God, you're so dramatic. Um, but that's what's happened. Like, part of what's going on with projects like this is we start to have these mind-blowing realizations, like watching Dignity Village become the place in the city with the lowest crime rate of everyone in the city. And it's made out, it's made by people who are, they got the worst grades in school, they have multiple personalities, they have cancer, they're absolutely impoverished, they're domestic violence survivors, some have been murderers and rapists, like. You know, everybody who ends up on the streets, plus all these wonderful, you know, other people, too, that um, just for whatever reason were on fixed income and they could no longer pay their rent. Uh, so-called ordinary people, all these people thrown out in the street and uh, not community leaders, not people with, you know, construction skills, not people who can fend for themselves and make it in this society. Like all these people falling through the cracks, they land in Dignity Village. And they create this astounding model of self-help where living and working is integrated. Like just remember all across the USA, people wake up in the morning in their neighborhoods and they have to leave where they live to go elsewhere, to earn currency, to pay for the place they barely get to be. And we all live in that crazy paradox. That disintegration by design is designed to stop the village from even happening. So a dignity village They live and work in the same place. And so the healing effects 
of having full spectrum relationships with the same group of people heals everybody. And it turns out that they have the lowest crime rates and the highest rates of community participation in all the city. They have the lowest carbon footprint, of course, of all communities in the city. There's all of these verifiable indicators that have to do with health outcomes, which are all measurable. And so what we see, the conclusion that we knew would be what we would see going in is that the village, the participatory village is a human habitat where people will thrive and the absence of it is a big reason why we have so many problems in this society, individually and collectively at every level. Mm -hmm. So dignity has replicated across the country in so many different forms in cities. You know, I don't know of, 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 of any south of the US border with Mexico, because I'm just simply not in touch. But I know from the US border with Mexico going north of cities all across North America that um, where this model has inspired not just projects, but officially recognized projects by homeless people, like officially recognized by city councils and mayors and stuff that actually actively organize. So yeah, the, this is this like, these are quick action, low cost models where the people are actually engaged in their own problems. And then of course they're practicing ecological principles, oftentimes without even understanding that or talking about it because they're constantly integrating and creating efficiencies and uh, when taking waste and turning it into more opportunity. And that's a human instinct to do anyway. But when you don't have anything and you're in a crisis mode and you have to like take care of yourself and make it the next day, these are just kind of automatic behaviors. You know, part of what I really appreciate about what I'm hearing you say is the combining of the civic engagement with a holistic, open-hearted design approach. And I, I think this, this civic engagement and the, and the retrofit focus would be a term I would suggest as well, because it's this, I see that as, as in many ways distinct from much of the permaculture rhetoric, so to speak, that you encounter in more of the privileged culture is this idea that we're going to leave existing communities and go create our ecotopic eco-village somewhere. And this seems distinct from that in many ways. And it resonates with a lot of my values and focus as an educator in New York City and in the Northeast, because that's been part of my emphasis as a teacher is we need to renovate, we need to retrofit where we are. And uh, this idea that, you know, we're going to go to some idealized place and create a permaculture kind of ecotopia, I don't think in many ways really serves the situation that we're in. I, I think it creates a disconnection, a sense of, you know, I can't wait. I often hear this phrasing, you know, I can't wait to do permaculture when I get my place in the country. And that was one of the things that when I came to New York City 14 years ago and started teaching permaculture there, I wanted to change that as far as the messaging of our program to have people feel 
what I call like they could seamlessly integrate what they were learning right where they are right now, that it wasn't something that they came out of our courses thinking, boy, won't it be great when I can get my place in the country so I can start doing this, right? Yeah. Well, permaculture would have us. This is actually the mantra of our activism and and our sense of revolutionary possibility is that you have to be able to um, act with whatever you have, wherever you are with whoever you're with right now. And um, so that you really own your context, you own your opportunities. You don't wait for permission or resources. You act with whatever, wherever, whoever you are with. And uh, I think that's a permacultural perspective. It's not, it's not in, instead of, or in like, you're not doing that because you can't do someone something else. That's the thing that you would always want to do. I want to agree with you. Um, absolutely. I, I mean, on one hand, okay. Well, f- for us, when we started to um, do like natural building in public spaces as kind of revolutionary act, Yanto Evans was saying to us, he's kind of like the fa- cob father in right. USA. Yep. Um, he was saying, no, no, this stuff has to go from all of these experimental situations where we've been kind of getting away with it in the countryside. It has to go into the city as an intervention. And he was absolutely right. And he, you know, he is really brilliant when it when it comes to these kinds of theoretical kind of perspectives. Um, he was absolutely right, and that's what we did. And since then, it's become a household word in Portland. Um, yeah, very strategic. So I appreciate the uh, the land based projects being out of town as kind of incubators because mm-hmm. you don't have scrutiny, you don't have kind of the issues of proximate neighbors bothering you. But once you've figured out some ideas, then you bring them into the city. And that's where you can inspire systemic change through all this social intercourse, all this proximity. Like, this is one of the things that's immediately a revelation about how you understand permaculture. You you look at it in a book, and until you practice it in the city, you don't realize, well, of course, this was all formulated in Australia. That's why they keep talking about all this land around you and, and all your zonation like just kind of going out endlessly with all this land base, but in the city, all the zones overlap and start to infer relationships with everything. And then all the things that you create become opportunities for community building and mentorship, stewardship, because, because your context is more fundamentally social care. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you articulate that way. Cause that definitely was my personal trajectory was, First, learning about it in the 90s and integrating it into my curriculum at a high school where I was teaching, and then going and creating my own permaculture home site in the mountains of West Virginia near Patch Adams and Gesundheit. And then after eight years of building a straw bale house and creating a permaculture educational site, I moved to Brooklyn and never looked back as far as the focus now for 14 years of my career being on the urban landscape and integrating permaculture into that. And I I totally concur that the going into the remote hills and being able to just do all kinds of experimental things was liberating and informative and inspiring to then in the sort of Taoist sense, come back down off of the mountain and go, 
into society and bring what are the what have you learned and how can it really be transformative for the bulk of the population? Because many people don't have that opportunity to be able to go. And, you know, I called it self-induced deprivation because I grew up with a certain degree of privilege and comfort. And so in order to experience the real ways in which these methods are, are empowering, I needed to put myself in a situation where I had to really um, develop those skills, building skills, water systems, food systems, energy, those, the foundational blocks, and then be able to kind of, after you deconstruct it and put it back together again outside of society, then you can kind of understand how it comes back into the culture and back into the landscape of a, of a highly industrialized uh, place, you know, the, the Northeast, especially. I teach a lot about the toxic legacy and how we need to have people researching that and understanding what are the what are the true costs of this industrial system because they're so exorbitantly high that I feel certain that we can do a better job than that without a whole lot really of effort in many ways. <laughs> the amount of effort that goes into the present system is mind-boggling in comparison to what does it really take to satisfy what our needs are to have a good life. It's not, it's not, it's not that complicated to, to meet human needs in a way that, that makes a much more appropriate design sense than the system that we're presently nested within. God. I think in order to be able to get as far as everything you just said, you really have to be, I mean, it's, it's hard to do it in isolation and, there are a few ind individual geniuses that can arrive at all of that knowledge. Um, I know that I couldn't, I would have, I, I have had to be working in the city, engaging the systems, bringing my rural experience, my experience in villages, but then working with other people who could share their ideas. And it's, I think it's really only been in the urban context where I could um, learn all the things I've had, I, I've been able to learn so far to even be able to track what you just said. Um, and I couldn't have done it if I'd just been in a rural circumstance without any kind of interface with the contradictions and the inefficiencies you were just talking about. Yeah. Here's one of our, here's one of the leading realizations for me that I really want to put in a chapter in a book and then expand into a book, really a movie, kind of like Kalyana Squatsy in a way. Uh-huh, um, yeah. Like, Here's this crazy realization about that inefficiency you were referencing. Basically, we all leave our, like, because we've, we, we've somehow agreed, okay, we won't be place-based. We'll all get up in the morning and we'll vacate where we live. We'll have no village and we'll all go elsewhere to make representative currency to pay for all of these other systems that replace us in our own lives. So because we're leaving the neighborhood, we need a government to make decisions for us. Mm -hmm. We need a police force. We need therapists for our children because we leave our children. Yeah. And we, we need an educational system to replace us. Like all of these corollary systems replace us because we vacate where we live. And it's not a one-to-one -one trade. The, the system that we're part of also does, I mean, it's really like in the order of thousands of percent of inefficiency. 
And then also no trade for all of the social cohesion that is lost, that results in just separateness and individuation, which is like the grossest national product of all. But to me, the fact that the system is constantly delivering surplus to the wealthy constantly and every, and like there are so few closed loops, I was gonna say with the closing of every loop, but they're, the loops just fracture all the time and send mm -hmm. surplus to people who become more crazy with the more power that they amass. And their life purpose seems to be aimed against the viability and the resilience of the planet itself. So, so I just want to stay home. Yeah. I want to stay home. I want to be my own, I want to be my own fire department. Right. And this isn't theoretical. The place that mm -hmm. the place where we've been, where we got things started, where Penny and Star both came after the slideshow gave, and they came and saw what we were doing. Star just sat down on the ground and was crying. She's like, "Oh my God, that's real! Like you're actually doing it here. That place. This is the craziest thing. I drew all these conflicts that people get into. That place has been humming along for 27 years. I have never even seen conflict on the community scale between people." Certainly proximate neighbors have their issues that they work out. And that's fine. <laughs> but as a group, no meltdowns, no conflicts. There's something about the place-based integration being the context for more thriving and opportunity than for the conditions that lead to self-destruction. <clears throat> and, and this is the this seminal site that you're referring to where, where the, the project started in yeah. 2001 1996 oh, was when it really started yeah uh -huh. and then 2001 um the village building convergence actually started there with one project and then it went seven neighborhoods eight neighborhoods the next year 12 neighborhoods the next year 18 the next year 24 the next year ultimately up to about 45 neighborhoods like every year going forward after that so you must have a whole team that works with you on those projects. Well, we did. And then the uh, pandemic and then our internal implosion I was referencing earlier happened. People got chased out based on skin color, actually. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. People were trying mightily to get rid of me as well. And uh, what, what, we're have, what we have now is people have actually come back that were alienated before and we've re we're rebuilding the core group and uh, all these young people that are looking to, you know, figure out how to help are coming in. So, yeah, it's uh, it's coming back. That's good to hear. Thanks. And everybody's welcome. I mean, there's probably some people who were so unethical, I, I couldn't trust them again. But um, in, in theory, anybody could come back. Uh, make amends and get back in common cause with each other. But at this point, it's functional. It's thriving. We're doing well. And is that the neighborhood that you're living in? Uh, that, that neighborhood is like the, the axis bundi of all of it. But no, it's really a citywide effect now. The core yeah. group calling itself city repair comes from all over the city. Yeah. They come from all over the city. And then we have interns from other countries that come in and help. We always have always have Japanese interns we always mm -hmm. have people from Japan coming over to to learn um, together and then take 
ideas back to Japan and implement them. What What are some projects that you have in the wings that you'd want to share with us? Yeah. Well, the biggest sort of share of our projects have to do with repurposing right-of-ways through the installation of big graphic projects. So intersections being turned into these giant murals and then on the perimeters of those on the corners. And these are sometimes three-way intersections, sometimes five-way, mostly four-way intersections. So you have four corners usually. People are installing benches and kiosks and gardens, orchards, um, rain gardens. And uh, occasionally they're cutting curbs to create street swales to passively water these landscapes. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like the starter kit to me yeah. um, for rebuilding is the, like of all of the like seven or eight different kind of essential patterns of, of village design, to me, the catalytic one is the crossroads where you create a village center. And then outside of everyone's kind of private rectangle around that, as part of the blocks where they live, um, they now have a place that everyone understands they should have access to, but they all are deferential within for each other. And um, that's the context where they start to gel. And then, and then the private things that they do or the proximate things that they do, but you know, with the people around them, those just kind of start to happen organically. And do you find, I'm, I'm curious, do you find uh, the permaculture design certification structure to be something that is a useful kind of tool for the work that you're doing? Is it something that, that you're working with as a, as a format? Yeah. What, what are your, yeah. what are your thoughts on that? Well, I've, I've always thought of permaculture education as being a form of activism, but once it was in the hands of our team who really thinks of ourselves as activists and are working really intentionally in the urban context, we started to modify it. We still kept the same you know, set of principles, but we evolved them. They all, they all took on a social implication and a social responsibility. Um, and they all got understood differently, as we were saying about zonation, when people live together. So, you know, these kind of all these evolutions have happened in order to tailor it to our context. But uh, so and, and the, the big yes to me, one of them is that because we, we take on this language and this, this body of information, we then become part of a global movement where we can share with each other in this open source way. And then, you know, all these people come from around the world to see what we're doing. And in terms of permaculture, it's easy for them to understand what we're doing. But the way that we've evolved, what I think that we've contributed to permaculture is um, that we have, we have understood that, in, especially in the urban context, placemaking becomes the, um, the armature, the human armature of permaculture design. So, you know, a, uh, a village or a re-villaged block has a perimeter of portals that you enter uh, into pathways that are interesting and connective to nodes of activity. And then ultimately a center or multiple centers 
Um, and then there's all of these installations that have to do with meaning and story. And that is the that is the place infrastructure where you are basically, you know, you're at, you're eliciting permaculture from within that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and all of that is made out of permacultural values and, and decisions and relationships. So that's that's how we've been operating. But yeah, the language, the language is is the language of permaculture and the principles of permaculture. But not necessarily calling them PDCs. Is that actually you you PDC? Our our course that we've been teaching for a dozen years. Urban urban culture. Yeah. Design certification. Yeah. Yeah, but uh that got derailed as of last year. And so we know that it's 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 crazy that our city's not presently featuring a permaculture certification course. So we're getting back on track with that. Um and I'm not sure when it's gonna restart, but we know that it's going to. Well, Mark, I would certainly love to help with that. Thanks. Yeah, my my wife's sister, Lania Magana, lives in Portland. So I have some familial reasons to want to like throw a line out there and say, bring me in if you'd like. If I have a good fit for you, I'd love to work with you and doing some permaculture educational programming there. Yeah. Yeah. Whether you're here physically or by Zoom, I mean, these, these yeah. two, you know, variety yeah. of tools. Yeah, I just just taught with Larry Santoyo's class down in LA. Larry and I are good friends and have co-taught for a bunch of years together. Okay. Well, great. Yeah. Yeah. I I know Larry. Um, We've done a few projects together and I've stepped into his course a few times. I'm glad to hear that he's he's still teaching. I wasn't sure. um, After Toby's. Yeah, after Toby died, and yeah. uh, he started this whole uh, kind of store project. Yeah, yeah, I lost track. We were trying. I'm going down to LA actually to do a bunch of uh, in a week and a half, and uh, I don't know if I'm going to see him. But we were trying to set up something again. I hope I hope something like that happens. So. Yeah, he That's just usually- gra- he just graduated a class, and I did did crits for his design presentation on zoom. Okay. Just this Sunday past. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Well, what we're doing at this point toward getting the class back together is we're just holding the regional potlucks to get the, the culture back together, get leaders talking to each other face to face. And, uh, you know, there's things going on like Andrew Millison and Marisha Arbach are teaching online online. Yep. But there's nothing like face to face in person, so right. I, I think it's going to come back. My piece, though, is I have a six year old daughter, and I I can't give the energy that I've been able to in the past. So yeah. um, I'll play the role of a, an advisor or something, but I'm not going to be leading anything for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been fortunate. My daughter's 13, and I've been fortunate to come on staff at a school near here that I'm doing a barter with their program and teaching permaculture at it. It's called the Homestead School and it's a Montessori school. And that's that's been really a, a good opportunity for me to be present as a, as a father in her education, which is very important to me, and be able to have some 
you know, influence on the curriculum of the school, which is really a, a unique opportunity that I feel very fortunate for. That's wonderful. Yeah. I'm glad you have that. Yeah, I, I, to- I so agree with the themes that you were bringing of this being present in our own lives, being present in our communities, really paying attention to the power of the way this system tries to fragment us and just take us away from our homes and from our communities and in conscript us into really just helping to accrue more, you know, more money for the wealthy and not building any sense of integrity or health or well-being in our own place, in our own spaces where we're so distracted and fragmented as a culture and and unaware of the real sacrifices the way so much of our country has been turned into a sacrifice zone for corporate and military domination and profits and i I think i don't want to perpetuate it and i don't want to hand it to future generations that's right and the way we start with that is now in our own lives with our own children of our own families and our own communities. And I also, I really, I just so appreciate the, the civic focus too, because so much of what I encounter often in the permaculture community is this kind of apolitical attitude. And I think it's very important that we get, get into the weeds and get involved in local politics, get involved in it, get people. My wife, Adriana Magania right now is going to be running for the town council of where we are and we're, pretty deeply enmeshed in local politics because we feel it's important that you want to overpose many, you know, the multifaceted ways that we can be playing beneficial roles are important. Yeah. Yeah. I believe very much in what you were saying. We've, Penny, um, Penny was articulating similar things a couple decades ago and she got so much pushback from certain old codgers saying, you know, don't use permaculture language for these conversations because it's really only appropriate in garden design. And uh, she was trying to point out that, you know, the whole idea of, for instance, working with succession is that you're, you know, you're, you understand that you're in, in a process of change and you really aren't thinking how to consciously evolve then we should be looking forward to and appreciating new forms. But actually, their pushback on her was evidence that they hadn't even read Mollison's design manual because he talks about these things, about human habitat and human systems. Yeah. Um, And it's part of, it's already part of, you know, the the ground, the ground understanding of uh, permaculture's role. It was never meant to just be limited. And we should be looking forward to evolving its forms and its relevance. Well, your work is a real inspiration. I so appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. And I really look forward to connecting with you more. I would love to, you know, when I'm out there to meet with you in person and and uh, see some projects, but really just to continue the conversation and know that I'm here as a, as an ally who would really love to collaborate with you in ways that we can 
make work for where we both are and what the what the possibilities and opportunities are because i have a deep respect and admiration for your work thanks andrew i really appreciate sitting down with you today and talking about all this and, and when you do when you do come out why don't you give me a heads up a little bit in advance so that we can get together and sit in the sun and just talk about possibilities absolutely absolutely okay. yeah and thanks so much for your responsiveness when I reached out to you. That really means a lot to me. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. It means a lot to me too. So thank you. Thanks for getting it started. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mark. I'm going to, I'm going to sign off. I don't want to take up more of your day here. And I'd also love to keep you on tap. Let's uh, to be continued. Let's have sure. some more conversations and uh, lots more to explore with you. Guaranteed. Great. Okay, thank Andrew. Have, have a, a great, great day. Rest. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Permaculture Perspectives with Mark Lakeman. Thanks for listening. And you can follow us on Instagram at Permaculture Living. And you will find us on the web at Permaculture New York, all spelled out, permaculturenewyork.com. Enjoy the rest of your day. And drop us a line if you have any topics or people you'd like us to interview. Take care.